the brand is very important, but it's, it, but I look at it second. I always look at the entrepreneur first, and then what I look for in the entrepreneur is their intuition. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we're going to jump into the world of venture capital as we sit down with Will McClelland, the co-founder and partner of Elizabeth Street Ventures. Will, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. It's great to talk to you today. So I want to start with your journey. What has taken you to be in the seat here at Elizabeth Street Ventures today? Can you tell me a little bit about that path? Sure, absolutely. Um, So as an undergrad at Yale, I studied economics and anthropology as a double major. I think I always knew that I was going to be in business, but then I also had a very strong interest in culture, travel, um, the way people kind of organize themselves and what they value, et cetera. So did that and then you know went immediately into investment banking. My first job after school was working at Lehman Brothers in their tech investment banking group at Menlo Park. And this was back in the the tech bust of 2002-ish timeframe. So that got me out to California. That got me interested in that was my first introduction, actually, to Silicon Valley, to startups, to technology, to business. But then I did that for a number of years and then was, was, was able to take a job at a fund in San Francisco called Ironwood Capital Management, which is a fund of hedge funds. And I was somewhat inspired by Yale's endowment model, which you know David Swenson was investing in a lot of alternative asset classes, private equity, venture capital, and hedge funds. And I thought, you know, going to work in the hedge fund industry, but being able to stay in San Francisco, which was also a huge interest of mine being in California, having grown up in, in Connecticut and having gone to school in Connecticut. I went and did that. And, you know, when I started in Ironwood, uh, we were a fund that had about $250 million in assets under management. And in the eight years that I was there, we grew it to about $3.5 billion. So it was, it was a quite a wild time for the hedge fund industry. And our fund grew, you know, we outpaced the growth of the hedge fund industry by, by multiples. And so about halfway through my time at Ironwood, I was uh, promoted to actually being head of research. So I'd start as an analyst. I became the head of research. I built and managed a research team that was responsible primarily for due diligence, new manager sourcing, portfolio construction, risk management, et cetera. I also started in 2007 writing Ironwood's quarterly investor letters. I think my boss at the time thought it was a good idea when things were going very well in the market to have a 27-year-old start writing our investor letters. And then, you know, quickly after I started doing that, the financial crisis happened. So I continued to write our letters through the financial crisis, which was just a wild time and a great experience, but then also through the recovery. And after about eight years in Ironwood and about 10 years living in the Bay Area in San Francisco, you know, I hadn't gone to business school. I hadn't gone to law school. I'd worked for, you know, 10 years straight through the financial crisis, which was an incredible experience. But I decided I wanted to do something different. I didn't really know what that was. And so I actually had, you know, so I I left Ironwood and actually put all my things into storage and and went traveling and, and spent about two years traveling around the world, which which I'll, I'll, I won't. I can I, I can do a whole podcast about that, but I won't. I won't get into 
so much of the stories. But before, but you know, and so that was kind of tying back in my interest in anthropology. So I've you know for ten years been been an investor um, using you know that part of my brain, the economics kind of background, but. You know, like I said, anthropology, different cultures, travel was always very important to me. And I'd grown up, you know, I'm a dual citizen, um, Filipino-American. My mother's a, you know, first-generation Filipino that came, you know, married my dad and moved to the States. And my younger brother actually lives in the Philippines. And about 10 years ago, during my time running the research group at Ironwood, my younger brother came to me with an idea that he had had. He had been living in my laundry room actually in San Francisco for about six months, deciding what he wanted to do when he graduated from grad school. And he eventually moved to Manila where we have a lot of family members. And he, when on one of his visits back to San Francisco, we were eating dinner uh, together at a restaurant and he pitched me this, this idea that he had, which was he wanted to start a bamboo bicycle company. And I thought it was very interesting, you know, um, and I wanted to help out my brother. And he said, bamboo is a renewable resource. It's a, you know, bicycling is the green, you know, the greenest mode of transportation. I've seen how people can actually manufacture these, these bikes. I want to do something in the Philippines that, you know, gives back to the people of the country, but then also uses, you know, resource that we have in abundance and do something that's good for the environment. And he's, he's a very skilled builder working with his hands and never wanted to be in an office. And so I just thought, wow, this is a, you know, he's got this kind of inspiration and he's my younger brother. And I was fortunate at the time to, to have, you know, be in a position to kind of back him. And so I said, you know, this is great. Write me a business plan and let's talk about it. And so he did. And we kind of, we kind of dug into it and I started working with him about the idea. And I, you know, I ultimately wrote him his first check to get him started. So it was, first time I'd ever kind of interviewed an entrepreneur. It was the first time I'd ever considered investing in a startup. It's a social enterprise. It was the first time, you know, I kind of got him up and running. And this is about 10 years ago. You know, 10 years later today, I mean, that business, it's called Bambike. We manufacture and sell amazing bicycles made out of bamboo. You know, we have a village three hours north of Manila that where we, you know, we have builders that, that make the bikes. We pay the teacher salary for all the kids in the village to educate the children. Um, my mom was working with the women in the village making jewelry. And so it was just kind of this amazing experience, you know, seeing it go from kind of business plan to check to product, but then also, you know, going over there and seeing the livelihoods of the people that you are affecting through, through business and what you were doing you know, positively for the environment and the whole thing. And I think it really kind of culminated for me. And now we run, we run bike tours and we're actually the number one rated um, activity on TripAdvisor in Manila. If you check out our bike, so we're kind of the Mike's bikes of, of the Philippines now, but it's all on our bike tour, um, on our bikes and with our tourism company that we have. And, you know, it kind of highlighted to me, I guess it kind of culminated when the Philippine ambassador to the United States actually gave one of our bikes to President Barack Obama as an official state gift, which now is like permanently like housed in the Library of Congress. Right. And that to me was just like the moment where I was like, wow, like my brother's idea, my check 
my helping with the business and helping him kind of frame the strategy and watching him grow it over a long period of time and then culminating with, wow, like President Obama is actually getting a gift from the Philippine ambassador and it's our bamboo bike. Like there's something, you know, that kind of sparked my interest in entrepreneurship, but, you know, really as the kind of funder and the investor in, you know, investing with entrepreneurs. So going back to when, when I was leaving San Francisco, I decided to, to leave Ironwood on very good terms after eight years there and leave San Francisco after 10 years in San Francisco in the Bay Area. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I always had that kind of spark in the back of my head about, you know, my brother and what he'd done and what we had done together um, and what he was building. So I put everything into storage and I bought a one-way ticket to Manila and I didn't have a job and I was ready to just go travel around the world. And I visited Manila and I saw my family and I went to go to our village, you know, three hours north of the city to work with my brother and help him work through like streamlining the supply chain and, you know, kind of, you know, kind of drawing him on business points, but then also just like seeing what the operation had done since we had, we had originally funded it. And like, when you show up to the village and all the kids run out of the houses and kind of surround you and, you know, are kind of like happy that you're there and they're cheering. I mean, it's a, you, know, it's a, you can't help but be emotional about that type of experience. And then knowing in the back of your head that it was your kind of investment that made this all possible, like that stuck with me, right? Um, and it stuck with me as I kind of, you know, and I left, I ended up leaving the Philippines and traveled for about two years after that, which was kind of an incredible experience and unconventional. And I wish more people would, would take time off and travel. To me, I thought it was, you know, it was for me, it was investing in myself and it was investing in an experience that I, I just had a strong feeling that, you know, on my deathbed later in life, the time I took off to travel around the world is not going to be this thing in my life that I ever regret doing. And it was as rewarding as you would, would imagine. But ultimately, I thought, and I don't want to go longer than two years because two years was kind of, I hadn't gone to business school. So I kind of had it, I had two years kind of marked in my head as an acceptable amount of time that I could be gone on this personal journey of exploration, but then also come back and you know, reintegrate into, into business. And that I felt anyone that I would go work for or work with after my trip, if they didn't approve of what I had done, well, then that probably would tell me that those aren't the type of people that I would want to be working with anyway. So I had an incredible experience. And then when I, when I moved back to the States, I moved to New York. And I'd always wanted to live in New York. I grew up in Connecticut. I went to college in Connecticut. I lived in, in San Francisco for 10 years. And I'd been, I'd been in, you know, over 20 countries around the world on this trip. I, you know, traveled everywhere. But you know, to me, New York was like this amazing international diverse city that I just hadn't lived in yet. And so I was very motivated to live in New York. But then I was also, you know, after the trip, very motivated to, to get into business. And I, I was very motivated to start investing in companies similar to my brothers, but, you know, not, not necessarily social enterprises, but businesses that, that I thought you could earn a financial return investing in. And, and um, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to just walk in and get hired by a venture capital fund, um, especially having taken some time off. And I, and I, but I was extremely interested in venture capital. I knew I kind of had to break into the industry. And I thought the best way to do that was to, to work for a family office. And I've always been interested in, you know, consumer culture. I've always been an early adopter. You know, I had a, I had a beeper watch when I was 
a kid. I mean, I've just been very interested in, in emerging technology, emerging trends, emerging brands, things like that. And so I thought, wow, it's interesting that I was in the hedge fund industry living in San Francisco. I had a strong sense that there's an opportunity for the venture capital industry being in New York City. And I saw New York City as this amazing, amazing ecosystem for for startups that was just kind of developing. And I was, you know, I was ultimately connected to, um, through my network, a father and son named Frank and Frank. And Frank and Frank owned and they operate a beauty distribution business called Grace Beauty. And I was introduced to them through a friend of mine from the Bay Area that was, was in venture capital. And so I knew that the son, Frank, was interested in investing in venture capital. And so I kind of pitched him this idea that, you know, if, if you have a beauty distribution company and you create a strategic investment arm and start investing in startups. So kind of combining that retail 1.0 traditional on-shelf physical retail distribution, they're selling to, they're selling to retailers like Target and Walmart and Walgreens and CVS. Etc. But if you're investing also your your capital, your own capital with with companies that are selling online and you're kind of tapping into this next generation of e-commerce. And this was this was in 2013 when I moved back to the states and when I met Frank. And so we started having a conversation at the end of 2013. So you had the rise of some of these you know these these e-commerce businesses. Online shopping was was growing very quickly iPhone adoption had had already taken hold. Amazon was, you know, Amazon was you know a very acceptable way to to buy products, but it was still early, right? I mean, there was 2013, you know, 2010, 11, 12, where a lot when a lot of these companies like Warby Parker and Harry's and Peloton were just getting started. So I, I pitched I pitched them the idea that if you create a strategic investment arm and start investing in startups in this ecosystem, in this consumer next generation digital brand space that it'll, it'll put a halo around your entire business. And, and that's what we did. And so they hired me with the, at the beauty company. Um, so I was an employee of Grace Beauty. But then what we did is we created this investment brand called Grace Beauty Capital. And then I went out and I created a narrative for Grace Beauty Capital and met tons of entrepreneurs and networked and helped my partners essentially create and grow and manage a consumer-focused venture capital portfolio. And so we started in about 2014. My partners had already made some investments. So they were early investors or seed investors in companies like Peloton and Harry's and Birchbox, um, early investor in Warby Parker. So, you know, we had a lot, we, we had a very good, a good start. And so what I did is I took that and I created a narrative around it and I put it into the online databases. And then I went out and I sourced about, 20 investments over the four years that I ended up working with them and invested in great, you know, consumer brands like Third Love and Rafi's and Glam Squad and Supergoop and Eloquy and MM LaFleur, um, you know, many of which have done, you know, very, very well. And it was that kind of network building, that investment track record, uh, making those investments and really kind of break, that was my way to break into the venture world um, and doing it through a family office and a strategic and, you know, kind of create, helping to create a strategic investment arm of a family business called Grace Beauty Capital, which, you know, I think ultimately became 
and we had a very good reputation with entrepreneurs because, you know, I could say to an entrepreneur, look, we'll be the only investor on your cap table that also has inventory in a warehouse. And so we can be helpful in thinking through things like your physical retail strategy, which at the time, you know, combining, you know, online, digital, and offline physical was still, you know, it was less, you know, brands like Warby Parker were doing it and starting to open stores, but it was less obvious to these kind of online commerce businesses um, back then. So we, we basically said early on, like, look, we can help you combine this like offline world and the online world in a way, and we also know how to build brands profitably on shelf. And so that resonated, and so we had great, we had great um, deal flow, we got great referrals, we loved working with amazing entrepreneurs, and that was ultimately what built my track record to a point that enabled me to, to start Elizabeth Street um, about two years ago. That's wonderful. Well, so let's dive in a little bit more on that next generation of consumer brands. Um, you know, since you've been at Elizabeth Street, you guys have done some great investments like Oros and the Museum of Ice Cream. When you look at these brands, both when you're at Grace Beauty and now today at Elizabeth Street, what do you think are the most important characteristics in a new consumer brand? That's a great question. I, you know, so I, I kind of look at the brand is very important, but it's it, but I look at it second. I always look at the entrepreneur first, and then what I look for in the entrepreneur is their intuition. And I look, you know, in, in both those cases, or us in Museum of Ice Cream, the founders had an intuition that was so strong. They saw an opportunity or a gap in the market that they were creating a business to kind of build their life around. And 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 so what I what I look to do is I, I look to get behind the entrepreneur, I look to get behind the intuition. I try and match great intuition with what I think is large market size. And not only just large market size, but large market size in areas where I think there's a lot of natural strategic acquirers. So for us, for example, um, which is uh, an outdoor company that you, you created this proprietary insulation, adapted aerogel, which is what NASA uses to insulate the Mars rover and the space shuttle. And they, they were able as undergrads to take particles of aerogel and inject it into a thin foam core, which is a light, you know, becomes a lightweight, breathable insulation that they can use in jackets and, and fleeces and things like that. And it's actually the warmest insulation on the planet. So not only was there, you know, the founders of Wars had a, uh, they had an intuition that they could adapt the space technologies, they're scientists, but then they could, they could put it into market and, and actually bring to market the warmest jackets um, in the planet. Um, and so I look for things like that, where it's like, you know, for them, they have a very technical moat around their product construction. And some of the most successful investments I made at Grace Beauty, like in companies like Third Love and in Rossi's, similarly, there's a very big technical moat to the product construction. Bras, which which are made by Third Love, or, you know, the bras are the most technical, the most technically complex piece of apparel to manufacture. Rossi's is 3D printing. Um, women's shoes, and they're doing it with recycled plastic water bottles, which they, you know, kind of form into these thin threads, and then they put the threads into their 3D printing machines, and they print the uppers for um, these shoes, and it took them five years to kind of develop this technology. And so sometimes I look for things like that, like with Rothy's, Third Love, and Oros, where there's, there's a big technical moat around what they're doing, but also combined with 
the intuition that, you know, a warmer jacket, a more comfortable uh, ballet flat or a better fitting bra um, will resonate in the market. And the incumbent kind of larger companies in those spaces just hadn't innovated in many years because, because they hadn't had to, right? And so what, what technology and what e-commerce does today is allows some of these challenger brands to actually grow very, very quickly because customers can adopt these new types of companies very fast. So that's what I like to look for. With, with Museum of Ice Cream, the intuition was, it was more just, it was the creativity of the company, creativity of the founders, and that, you know, the intuition was the entertainment offerings in physical spaces are just lacking for this next generation of millennials and Gen Z. So I'd say it's different for every company. It's, it's certainly a case-by-case analysis, which is what I love about ventures. Everything is new all the time. So you're always looking at new companies and who are looking to solve different problems. But for me, it always boils down to what is the intuition of the founder? Do I get behind that intuition? And then do I think the founders have a magnetic quality about them to attract employees to the company, investors to the company, and then ultimately customers um, to their brand and product. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it. Recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So on that note, you know, less than a decade ago when you were you know, first investing in the, the Bamboo Bike Company, a lot of VCs were kind of afraid of the consumer space. They didn't think it was scalable, wasn't high growth enough, but that's really changed in recent years. Why do you think um, consumer brands have become such an attractive space where before they were kind of a scarlet letter? Well, I think, you know, I think a couple of things. One, I remember very clearly in a meeting with Jeff Rader, who, um, who founded Harry's, and he was telling me a story about when he pitched Andreessen Horowitz, and he was he was very adamant that a brand is, is a kind of moat around a business. And, you know, some of these tech investors, they didn't see it in that way. And, you know, I, I think, you know, it takes a long time to build a great brand, but, but over time, your customers are buying into your brand and you have something where, you know, your customer and a brand is almost like a loose friendship. I like to think of it that way. You know, that accrues a lot of equity value to a brand over time and does create a, a sort of moat. And I think it's hard to necessarily analyze with numbers. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of a lot of ways to analyze consumer businesses, LTV to CAC, et cetera. But I think for a lot of investors that are used to investing in you know, hard hard tech, um, software businesses, SaaS businesses, et cetera, you know, the the softer parts of consumer are harder to analyze, and therefore, like they don't, you know, it, a lot of investors that with that pedigree just don't. Um, find those businesses interesting. And for a long time, when I was investing in consumer companies early on, people thought it was a niche, a niche space. But if actually you look at 
kind of by revenue technology companies, both public and private in the economy, and consumer companies, both public and private in the economy, by revenues, consumer is actually a bigger, much bigger, is bigger industry by, by total revenue. So it's not niche at all, but I think there's a misconception by investors who were mostly focused on technology companies that, you know, consumer brands were, were somehow niche. And I think, you know, part of that was, you know, and, and I discovered this because I've invested in about you know, just over 30 companies now in six years. And half of those, over half of those companies have, have a female founder, or at least one female founder. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of male investors traditionally were overlooking, you know, big parts of the market because they weren't willing to understand, you know, a diverse group of businesses that, you could be very, very successful. And I think Third Love and Rothy's are two great examples of that. I mean, Third Love is a bra company and Rothy's is a women's kind of footwear brand. And early on, those companies both had a, had a hard time raising capital. Like Harry's and Peloton early on had a very hard time raising capital back in, in 2011, 12, 13 14 um, when I started. And so I think what's changed is that you've seen a lot of success stories. I mean, you've seen Harry's get acquired for over a billion dollars, Dollar Shave, you know, Glossier. Um, you know, there's a lot of success stories in consumer where I think in the investor community and venture have kind of woken up to the fact that it's not a niche, not a niche business. It's a huge business. And because of the digital distribution of products, a lot of these companies can gain consumer traction and can have very fast revenue growth. And so I've, I personally have had a couple companies that I've invested in grow from less than a million of revenue to over $100 million of revenue. And so the investment, you were, the investment returns that are possible in this space, I think, are what ultimately wake, wake investors up to to what's going on. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's when you, when you show people not only, you know, because some people aren't going to understand the intricacies of the bra market or the women's footwear market or the outdoor apparel market. But when you can show them returns 30 X to 40 X people wake up pretty quickly. And, and, you know, now there's many more investors interested in the space. On that note, you mentioned, you know, you've done a lot of different broad categories from ice cream to outerwear to women intimates. Are there any categories or consumer brands that you think are still ripe for disruption or ones that you're particularly paying attention to right now? Yeah, no, I think, look, I think at Elizabeth Street, one of our defining features is the broad aperture that we're looking at consumers. So we're looking at everything from fintech to healthcare and food, beverage, beauty, apparel, home, hospitality, et cetera, will all be kind of interesting to us. Um, but I'd say an area that I'm very interested in and excited about now is this whole um, experience economy. Um, so companies like Museum of Ice Cream, entertainment businesses, offline entertainment businesses, and so I think, you know, one of our, we're, we're, we, we take a thematic approach to consumer investing and we kind of think through big picture themes and then we kind of look to invest across, the, you know, driven by those themes, we look to invest across a wide variety of categories, which I mentioned. And so then we find something like this experience economy, which kind of doesn't fit for a lot of tech focused VCs because there's a big real estate component to it. Um, and a lot of the concepts like Museum of Ice Cream are a little bit too early for a lot of traditional kind of private equity, growth equity firms, just young concepts, new concepts. So 
kind of falls. So we like that it, um, these types of experience businesses kind of fall between traditional type, you know, traditional VC and, and private equity. And so we're very excited about experience businesses because what you've got is if you if you're going to start with online shopping and e-commerce, and then and then you see that people are switching from shopping in physical retail and department stores to buying things now on their computers and increasingly on their phone. Well, then you have a lot of retailers physically like closing locations and going out of business, Barney's, um, et cetera. Like, there's a long there's a long line uh, of them and, and bankruptcies, et cetera. But you know, the physical real estate doesn't go away. So what's happening is you have um, apparel and department store retailers closing um, store locations, and you have commercial rents falling. Um, you have them falling all over the world, and a lot of it is driven, you know, going back to this whole rise of e-commerce. But, you know, what to do with those spaces? Like, how depressing would it be to have a world where in your major cities you've got huge shopping streets with, with massive vacancies? So we're very excited about companies that are kind of building building um, business models for those spaces and Museum of Ice Cream is a great example of that. And so we think there's a very exciting opportunity for startups that have business models that can take 20 to 30,000 square foot locations in cities globally. Because, you know, when you look at the success of, of brands like SoulCycle, Rumble, Barry's Bootcamp, et cetera, I mean, a lot of those fitness concepts solve a problem for real estate owners with kind of 5,000 to 8,000 square feet. But who's solving the problem for real estate owners with 20 to 30,000 square feet? And so we actually today have two investments, Museum of Ice Cream, uh, which is an entertainment company, and, and High Court, which is a new kind of membership club that we're bringing to market in New York next year that, that can take you know 25,000 square feet. And if you can do that, and you can do it with a very profitable business model, you're extremely interesting to real estate owners. And so that's an area that I think we are very excited about Elizabeth Street that, um, you know, fewer, I guess, VCs are interested in because of the real estate component. But a lot of the brands are just too early and unproven yet to be kind of funded by traditional um, growth equity firms. So I'd say it's this experience economy, but it's also just taking advantage of, of these plummeting commercial uh, rents um, and finding businesses, funding businesses that can take twenty to thirty thousand square feet of uh, vacant real estate. So, Museum of Int- of Ice Cream is a really interesting one on that note of experiences, and they've kind of now broadened the company even to really embrace that because they built you know not just a brand but this curated destination experience, and they did a lot of high profile partnerships. What do you think's made that company so appealing that some of the biggest companies in the world want to partner with them? Well, again, I think it goes back to the intuition of the founders. Uh, Mary Ellis is an amazing creative talent with a lot of creative energy. And with Museum of Ice Cream, she created a concept with her partner, Manish, that you know is a huge draw to millennial females. And it's getting people off their couch, off of Netflix, and into a space for an hour and a half where it's all about imagination, creativity, connection. And that's a, that's a hard thing. You know, you can't do that inauthentically. So I think the fact that they created a very authentic entertainment experience that is analog 
it's analog at the end of the day and people Instagram it all the time because, you know, it's, so it's definitely a digital brand and it's, um, it lives out there in, in the Instagram world. But, you know, the core of the experience is like you're in there with friends or with your children or, you know, with your, with a, with a date and you're having an experience in real life, which you're having fun. Right. And so, you know, it goes back to that simple, human element that I, I like to go back to is kind of my anthropology side of the brain. Like people are looking for authentic, fun, entertainment experiences. And so she created something that's completely unique and, and authentic. It's entertaining. Um, it gets people into these, you know, these spaces and in the built world, which is, you know, not boring and uninteresting. I mean, it's, it's just, it's this Willy Wonka type of experience. And so I think that is something that these larger brands, you know, recognize and want to partner with because it's very hard to create that authentically inside of a large, a large organization that's been around for, for decades. Right. So in many ways, these large brand partners see what museum of ice cream has done, see the draw, and see the connection that they have with their customer base and you know, would really would really like to partner with that. I mean, if you think about the amount of time someone spends in a museum of ice cream, it's about an hour and a half. I mean, you know, you have three seconds on shelf in, in a grocery store and, or in, a, in, a, in physical retail to connect with someone. You have three seconds on shelf to make that connection. Well, museum of ice cream is building that connection over an hour and a half with customers. I mean, that's an incredible incredibly powerful um, thing. So I think the world is going in the direction of these experiences. And I think brands recognize that very clearly. And I think Museum of Ice Cream, they recognize is, is, is one of the leaders, if not the leader in the experiential economy space. So Museum of Ice Cream has been able to do brand partnerships with, with Sephora, with American Express, with Adidas, with Target, et cetera. And, you know, we're, you know, talking with many, many large brands about new New partnerships as well, which are very exciting, which you'll start to see very soon, um, especially when we open the New York flagship in two weeks. I think people will, will start paying much more attention to Museum of Ice Cream, and brands have already, you know, brands are very early and they've been approaching us, and so they're they know what we've got is is very special. And I think once we open the new flagship in New York, you know, people are going to see why why it's so special. So speaking of those big companies, you know, they've got a lot of approaches they can do with their innovation strategy, you know, from partnerships to investments to acquisition. What do you think they need to do in thinking about this innovation strategy in the face of all of these new startups? You know, what does a North Face do with an Oros? What does a Ben and Jerry's do with a museum of ice cream? Like, how do you think about that? No, that's a great question. I mean, I, you know, we, we've long believed that, you know, M&A is the new R&D. A lot of these companies aren't, you don't have the innovation in-house. And so they're looking to either partner with or acquire kind of innovative, fast-growing, young challenger brands that are reaching a demographic of digital consumers in a way that, you know, their brands, you know, these larger brands weren't initially built, built online. Um, so I think for a company like Oros, it's like, look, like, these larger brands are going to pay attention to what these challenger brands are doing. And then, you know, hopefully we'll acquire these brands. I mean, you know, that's a big part of our business model as venture investors is that, you know, we're funding things early that, you know, if we can create critical mass from 
from a revenue standpoint, from a customer standpoint, from a brand standpoint, where these larger brands will see that we're connecting with, you know, these digital consumers, um, this next generation of consumers, and, you know, creating things of, of, of high value that, you know, the, the larger strategic companies will, will either, A, they can try and copy it and replicate it, or they can acquire it and, and bring it in-house. And so, you know, I think it's, it's you know, we as, as venture investors, I think, can be that a sort of bridge between kind of the larger strategic world, you know, understanding um, some of the pain points of traditional retailers, et cetera, big brands, et cetera, and then looking for opportunities to find companies building to white spaces, you know, in those areas and across a lot of categories. And I think we're just still in the very early innings of online shopping is like 10% share of total shopping. And I think it's maybe now gotten to 15%, but it's, it's going to 20 and 30% very quickly. And that's a massive sea change. So these larger strategics have built businesses originally offline well, they need to adapt very quickly to an online world. And so they need different tools to enhance their e-commerce effectiveness. They need to acquire different brands um, and talent that um, just inherently know how to sell to this generation, how to do it through online channels, and how to build things that this next generation of customers wants. So I, I think, you know, a lot of these, these bigger companies need to have innovative thinking, but also be looking at, at some of these startup businesses and consumer very early on and being aware of you know, these can, you know, if you look at what, what third love is doing in their growth, which is phenomenal and extraordinary. And if you look at what's gone on with limited and Victoria's secret, which just announced no longer doing it's, it's, you know, it's fashion. So, you know, things can change pretty quickly, right? Like Harry's and dollar shave took a lot of market share from, from Schick and, and Gillette. And Schick, you know, Edgewell Schick, you know, ultimately acquired Harry's. So you're seeing examples of that, I think. And, you know, beauty industry is a great example of that. Um, you know, Cody just bought um, Kylie Jenner's brand for over a billion dollars, which is incredible. And that brand, I don't remember exactly when it was started, but you know, these brands are less than five years old. So it shows you the, the growth curves of these businesses are phenomenal, which interests me as an investor. But from the, from the standpoint of large strategics, I'd say, you know, develop relationships with some, you know, with firms like ours, you know, with firms that are investing in these companies. So you kind of have an understanding of what's going on and what's innovative in the consumer space. Because as a large brand, like you can't just, you can't necessarily just approach these small startup companies directly because they don't want to, you know, they don't, you know, they'll be intimidated by you. They can be, you know, scared, you know, they might necessarily want to take strategic money early on from, a large established competitor, but you know if if the strategics are speaking with firms like ours and like you know the people in the VC world and you know about trends and different brands, like I think you know there's a there's a very natural kind of bridge from from bringing these startups from you know a million in revenue to 25 million in revenue and then hopefully to hundreds of millions of revenue and then ultimately acquisition by you know, the large strategic players, which can benefit from the talent, the brand equity, the, the new products and experiences that are being developed by these incredible entrepreneurs. So, you know, startups and venture capital are fast moving, to say the least. With your background in anthropology and everything else, 
How do you approach your own personal development in technology and industry trends? No, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, you look, I think travel is very important because you're having a very broad perspective and, and, and getting outside of, you know, the New York and San Francisco bubbles and seeing how people, you know, actually live in the rest of the country and the rest of the world and then forming kind of my own personal views around that and the, the, the things that connect us as humans is, is very important um, from an investment standpoint because I, I'm hoping to fund businesses that appeal to the, the widest amount of people right, who are consumers. So, you know, I've always naturally been an early adopter of new technologies and brands. We'll continue to do that, but I'm also, you know, very avid traveler and a seeker by nature. You know, I, I think just being curious naturally and reading a lot and exploring a lot and, you know, spending a lot of time, you know, we're in, you know, our office is, is basically on the border of Tribeca and Soho in Manhattan, which is kind of the nexus of uh, emerging consumer brands and trends. And so being in that space and, you know, that making that our kind of home, home turf, so to speak, and seeing what, you know, what the brands are doing with their new, with their pop-ups and things like that. And just always kind of being interested and, in, you know, spending time exploring different, different stores and different brands. And then, you know, in Soho, but then always traveling and keeping a broad perspective around the way, you know, people are living their lives and what's important, you know, culturally in the consumer culture and, and then being tuned into that and then trying to kind of fund against those kind of intuitions is, is what I try and do to, to stay fresh. I mean, I think initially when I started venture, I was, I'd, I'd gone from, you know, investing in my brother's company, which is a social enterprise, which was, you know, about creating better products for the environment, you know, improving the livelihood of people that we were employing. And I think I immediately went to, um, you know, starting in venture, looking to invest in things where you could just make money. But that's evolved into investing in, in companies and with entrepreneurs that are building things of value that actually improve people's lives and improve people's lives. And then also investing in brands that you think can be culturally relevant. I think one of the most exciting things about being in New York City is we're kind of at the forefront of not only a diverse set of industries, but, you know, also at the forefront of what's going on culturally. And so to me, it's, it's being curious. It's, it's, it's finding white space in different markets, but then, you know, backing great entrepreneurs and great brands that can, can be financially successful for us and our investors, but then also ultimately, hopefully, be be culturally relevant in the zeitgeist, so to speak. I love that. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a, a pleasure to sit down a little bit, learn about your journey as an investor and a little bit more about Elizabeth Street. So thank you for taking the time. Dave, it was great talking to you, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.